This is the Kincaid and Breckenridge Highlights podcast. Uh, on this morning's program, Friday, February the 5th, we talked to Preston Manning about you know what it's going to take to unite the right in Alberta. We've got two political parties on the right trying to get it together, but the movement is actually much bigger than that, and he helped explain that to us. We also talked about Canada's defense policy. Analyst Bob Murray joined us a conversation about uh, asserting ourselves in the Arctic and how worried we should be about the Russians, and also the question of finally figuring out what our new ISIS mission is going to be. You can listen to Kincaid and Breckenridge Monday to Friday, 9.30 to 12.30, right here on News Talk 770. Welcome back, Rob. I feel like somewhat satirically opening this segment with a countdown to the next provincial election. Which is when, by the way? (laughs) Only 1,014 days left of Albertistan. Wow. Did you? Oh, we still have that somewhere, by the way. What was that? uh... What do you mean somewhere? (laughs) Got it right here. Yeah, we kind of gave up on that. What, on the whole Albertistan thing? Yeah. Letters from uh, from Albertistan? Dear sweet Elise, such tremendous news in Albertistan today. One Lloyd Griffiths purchased the winning Lotto Super 7 jackpot ticket and won $50 million. The government quickly confiscated the ticket and has distributed his winnings province-wide. We are all getting $11.90. Herbert Q. Tactonford. I mean, that'd be a great Ken Burns film, the, the new <laughs> Alberta stand. What else did we do? Remember the uh, Alberta held hostage? Alberta under siege? Under, under siege, under, is that what it was? I still got that. Uh, let's see here. Uh... Alberta, the siege continues. Yes. There we go. Well, look, I mean, <laughs> there is a lot of frustration in Alberta. And, uh, you know, as we've been hearing, there are a lot of conservatives in Alberta who feel that, look, we got to make sure that this is a one and done government. And one of the risks we run is that, uh, you know, motivated conservatives will have two choices and that's going to split the vote. And, and maybe the NDP can sneak through and get reelected. We got to make sure that doesn't happen. So we've got like the Alberta Prosperity Fund uh, that's out there trying to make this happen. Brian Jean has has tried to further the conversation, but obviously his first choice is, uh, hey, everybody rally around me and my party. Um, We've got a by-election coming up in Calgary at some point soon, and I think that's going to be an interesting task because in all likelihood, I think the Wild Rose and PCs will still run candidates. Can one still prevail even if both parties exist? So. There are a lot of questions here about, well, what are conservatives going to rally around here exactly? Because certainly the Wild Rose and PC have uh, really been, I think, on opposite sides of so many big questions. I mean, the the 2012 election was between these two parties and featured very different visions on on where Alberta needs to go. You know, for my part, I I look at the playing field here and the landscape of the the conservative or the right in Alberta. I did it now myself. I I look at the uh, the conservative side of the spectrum in Alberta, and it's short on um, the solutions. Right. And we've certainly had the opportunity to prevent to present solutions. We had uh, a budget and then a failure from the finance critic to release a shadow budget. You know, we've had this uh, this farm bill, Bill six, and then just a lot of caterwauling and shrieking and look at what they're doing as opposed to what could clearly be read as like, here's here's a better way. And in seeing that Justin Trudeau was able to campaign on this concept of sunny ways and hey, showing a better way to get things done, maybe there's something to be said about that more positive side of matters. So if we're going to unite the right, are we going to unite the right around what a bad job, what an awful force the NDP is, 
or how these ideas are the best ideas available to us, and we have to embrace them. Well, someone who's uh, certainly been at the forefront of the Unite the Right movement in, in this country and uh, has a lot of views, obviously has some, some connection to a, a more recent attempt, shall we say, here in Alberta, is uh, Preston Manning. Joins us on the line this morning to talk about uh, the uh, op-ed piece he wrote. He is, of course, uh, founder of the Manning Center, uh, former uh, leader and founder of the Reform Party. Preston, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome yeah, to the program. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> okay, well, give us your, your uh, uh, not necessarily your assessment, but you know, your your perspective, I guess, on, on where you're coming at this from and, and why you feel that, that uh, you know, you, you need to weigh in. Well, as you say, there's a lot of discussion in Alberta among uh, conservative-oriented folk in, in both those uh, parties and even disconnected with it uh, about the need for a, a united conservative alternative to the NDP by the next uh, government. And uh, I think that's a worthwhile objective. I actually think it's a, it's a next-generation project. It, this is really something that the younger generation have to get behind and those of us that are of the older generation can contribute as maybe mentors and advisors and what what we can contribute or I can contribute from my perspective we went through this exercise at the federal level and you know made lots of mistakes but at the, at the end of the day it was relatively successful you got it went from reform to the Canadian Alliance to the Conservative Party of Canada to a minority government to a majority government. And I, I think we've got some experience in how to go about it, if that's the objective that might be helpful to the people that want to do that uh, provincially. Preston, what were some of the obstacles, though, that, that had to be overcome that were keeping the conservative movement uh, uh, from gelling nationwide and then uh, furthermore out of power? Well, first of all, like you mentioned, the, the, the different parties had been fighting each other for quite a while, so there was a lot of antagonism there. And so you, you had to proceed incrementally. You had to proceed step by step. There couldn't be one big jump. And then secondly, you had to create a third entity. You couldn't get reformers and PCs to go to each other but you could eventually get them to go to the, in this case, to the Canadian Alliance, to a third entity. And that was put together trying to incorporate the, the basic principles of, of both groups, uh, some of the basic policies, and an agreement on how to handle the disagreements, that there would be some things they couldn't agree on, but this is how they'll be handled. And I think your point was uh, excellent about the, 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 these exercises can't be simply getting together to beat the other guys. This Uniting the right in Alberta can't simply be a political exercise to beat the NDP. It's, it's to carry the judgment of the public. It has to have a positive long-term objective to, to ensure that Alberta is governed better under very difficult circumstances. It, like you said, it's got to be a, there's got to be a positive goal at the end. It can't just be a, uh, let's beat the other guys. Okay. Well, look, let's talk about December 2014. And your op-ed piece talks about mistakes made and, and lessons learned. So what, what do we learn from that experience? Well, for, from the floor crossing exercise, is that this type of thing cannot be engineered from the top. It can't be just a deal among leaders. It can't be some business people think you can just get the Wild Rose people, uh, leadership and uh, 
PC leadership into a room and say, look, there's no money for either of you if you keep this fighting among yourselves, but there'll be a big fund if you get together. I, it, it can't be exercised that way because th these parties, and I, I know something about parties, they've got thousands and thousands of grassroots members. They've got hundreds of thousands of, of voters, and you have to carry the judgment of those folks, which, which means a step-by-step -step process that can take time. But I, I think the biggest lesson of that is that it cannot be engineered at the top. It has to be grassroots process, and you have to take the time to do that. Now, now federally, it, it took years to do it because it, it's, the federal thing is a lot more complicated. You've got all the different provinces. We had to unite reform with the provincial PCs, and then once that was done, that had to be united with the federal PCs. We went through three, two or three changes of leadership in the process. The Alberta situation is a lot simpler. So the, to people that say, well, there's no time for that process, well, I say it can happen a lot faster here than it ever did at the, uh, at the federal level. Yeah, I think laws of scale take place here, and I certainly agree with what you're saying. But I also I also sort of wonder if it's a a difficult ask to manage of the of the parties and the party leadership, in that they have to balance the sensibilities of uh, you know different demo, different age demographics, the uh, rural urban uh, split, if you will, yeah, the the, yeah. the geographic uh, challenges that occur uh, when you're trying to win, you know, one of uh, when you're trying to collect seats in 87 different ridings. Yeah, no, that's true, uh, and uh, I think whoever puts this together, I, I think eventually maybe the, one of the first steps will be some kind of steering committee that unites these various groups that are trying to talk about this and pursue it in their own way. But uh, if that's done, that has to be a balanced group right from the front. And in Alberta, the three political balances you have to have, there's others, but the three most important is it has to be balanced between north and south. It can't all start in Calgary and then run up to the northern part of the province and say, we've got it all figured out, why don't you join us? It's got to be balanced between north and south. It's got to be balanced, of course, between the uh, PCs and the, uh, and the wild roads. It's got to be people connected with both and respected by both. And then it's got to be balanced at least on the, on the urban-rural scale. And uh, that balance is, uh, I think, is... Uh, is uh, critical, and then any process like this has to respect the position of the leaders, the current leaders of the the PCs in the Wild Road. They have they have legal as well as moral obligations to their members and their voters. So I, I think as a minimum, they they have to be kept informed of any of these efforts and consulted along the way, and and they have to be assured that if at the end of the day there's some new entity created, that they'll get a fear a fair and uh, equal crack at being the, the leader uh, the leaders of that when you talk about building on principles and it gets to the question of what is the right or what is a conservative when we saw for example the the spring budget in 2015 from the pcs leading into that election you know a lot of conservatives who supported the PCs said you know this is pragmatic they're doing what needs to be done on the other hand, a lot of conservatives said, look, this is a budget that raises taxes, this is a budget that, that keeps us in, in deficit for a number of years, puts us into debt. This is not a conservative budget. That was a big schism between the two parties in the last election. Well, that, that would be one of the areas there would have to be agreement. And I, I think given the seriousness of the situation here now that that people, whether they're Wild Rose or, or PCs, would agree that there, there has to be a, a quickest possible return to a balanced budget. You, you, this province is hemorrhaging hundreds of millions of investment dollars, which represent jobs because of a lack of confidence in the fiscal 
policies of the current government. And if anybody's going to offer an alternative, they're going to have to fix that and be be uh, committed to that. I, I think the circumstances now will make that it uh, make it easier to agree on that objective than it than it might have been even uh, a year or two ago. Uh, Preston, when you look around in you know the province at what's going on right now, uh, how various political factions are are behaving publicly, um, what 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 bothers you? What upsets you? And what do you think is a detriment to this unification process? Well, I, I think for one thing, just the, the, the divisions. There's a lot of well-meaning people tr- trying to work towards this objective, but fairly quickly they, they've got to get to. Together, so that if the effort to unite the right appears to be divided, that's sort of a contradiction in terms. So I think the the groups have to get together. And I say I, I know I'm repeating myself, but I think this business of carrying the judgment of ordinary folks and grassroots members as quickly as possible. It's it's interesting that some of the discussions that are occurring on this subject at the constituency level uh, are occurring in the ridings that are held by the NDP. They're not. Uh, as far along in the writings that are held by either a PC member or a Wild Rose member, because in those writings it creates a problem. If these things, get, if these groups get together, well, am I going to be the candidate or is somebody else? But in, in those writings, and this is what happened federally at the constituency level where these Unite the Rights discussions started, was in, in writings where we had lost, in our case, in two elections, we had lost simply because of the vote splitting, where there was obviously enough votes to take the seat but the vote splitting handed it over to the other guys. And uh, I think that there, those are the, some of the areas at the grassroots level where some of these discussions will be most productive uh, uh, the quickest. We saw in the fall, uh, or I guess uh, late late summer, the uh, Wild Rose Party win uh, a by-election in Calgary, a riding that had been held uh, by the PCs for its really for its entire existence. So they beat the PCs, they beat the governing party. Uh, we got a, another by-election coming up in Calgary at some point early this year. If the Wild Rose can pull it off again, why shouldn't they think that, well, look, we shouldn't, we don't need to worry about vote splitting. We can beat the PCs on their turf in Calgary. We can beat the New Democrats. That uh, it's about, like the New Democrats did, just making the other parties irrelevant. Well, you, you, you can go that route, but you have to look at some of the realities, too, that as you get further north, Wild Rose gets progressively uh, uh, not as uh, strong. You can look at the results of the last uh, election and uh, while Wild Rose got more seats, the PCs got considerably more votes. Uh, so, you know, you, you'll have to weigh those factors. Uh, in, in the federal case, the, the, all, all those arguments prevailed for, for uh, a number of years, from particularly from 1997 to about uh, 2000. But uh, if you lose a couple of elections, you know, you may win some by-elections, but if you lose a couple of general elections basically because of the vote splitting, we, we lost 40, 50 seats in Ontario, and we, we had over a million votes, but no, 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 no seats because of it. And eventually, people get tired of it, and they get tired of it at the at the grassroots level. They work their heads off for their respective parties, and, and then they lose the seat. So. Um, you can either wait until you learn that by experience, or you can look at what's happened elsewhere and say maybe we should be uh, at the front end of this rather than waiting to. We're, we're taught this by by discouragement. You know, I look at conservatism as a as an idea in the world we're in right now, and it's represented. It's carried by people like Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, 
uh, Marco Rubio, I would argue, to a lesser extent here at home. It's carried by uh, Brian Jean, I would say, more so than Rick McIver. And, and I wonder, Preston, if you feel that, that, that these leaders have evolved the concept of conservatism enough that it's appealing uh, to, to a majority of people such that they could form a government on these concepts. Well, I, I think conservatism, we put on this big uh, annual conference in Ottawa, it's called a networking conference, and it gets the think tank people, the advocacy groups, the political staffers, the elected people, both provincial and federal. In fact, Brian Jean's going to speak at it. There's three opposition leaders speaking at it, and all the declared candidates for the federal leadership will be putting their views forward. But one of the things we're asking all of them to talk about is is uh, how would you reinvigorate and redefine and re-express core conservative values so that they mean something and have some traction to this next generation? And I think that's what you're getting at. And uh, I think that does have to be clarified, and the person that does it the best is probably going to be in a better leadership uh, position. And one of the core things that conservatives do have to offer is a faith in the uh, capacities of the non-governmental sector, the capacity of the market, the capacity of the private sector business-wise, the uh, capacity of the NGOs and then the non-governmental parts of civil society to do many things better than the government can do. And uh, I think that that's a position that has resonated very, very well in Alberta in the past, and I think can resonate again. But it's it's got to be expressed in ways and means that in ways that means something to a, a next generation. And that'll be the challenge for Brian Jean, Rick McIver, whoever ends up uh, uh, leading some United Alternative in Alberta. So you, you, you refer in your piece to the uh, United Alternative Steering Committee, which uh, eventually resulted in the, the merger federally. Is, is that kind of step one then here in Alberta to, to form I, something I, like I that? I think so, yes. Or, uh, and maybe that's not the right word. I mean, I'm kind of using the words that we use at the federal uh, level, maybe it's not the right word, but I think the creation of some group to provide some organization to this type of effort and one that possesses this balance so that it is respected by north and south, rural and urban, and uh, and Wild Rose and PC uh, people. And I'd see that being a fairly, in our case, it was a fairly small group. It was sort of like concentric circles. There was a, a small group that tried to manage it uh, at the beginning, but then there was a broader group of advisors, supporters, people that had connections with the different groups uh, around that. But I think that's one of the first practical steps to g- giving some legs to this idea that a lot of people are talking about. All right, Preston, uh, a great piece today in the Herald, and thanks very much for your time on our program today. Yeah, really thank it. you, fellas, for, I mean, you're stimulating this discussion, and uh, no doubt it's going to be an ongoing one. So oh, yeah. So keep up the good work. We, we've got the trench dug, sir. We're ready okay. to go. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. That's uh, Preston Manning, founder of the Manning Center, of course, uh, leader of the Reform Party, uh, discussing you know, what it's going to take to unite the right, as it were, or as it is, in uh, the province of Alberta. Let's take a pause right here. We'll, we'll continue with some thoughts. And yours as well. Text us, 770. Phone us, 974-8255. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. You know, the Super Bowl is this weekend. Did you know that, by the way? Has there been enough publicity? Oh, Super Bowl L. <laughs> Super Bowl L. I'm, I'm so disappointed that they didn't that they abandoned the Roman numerals for this coming Super Bowl because a gigantic L in San Francisco, I think, would be awesome. And then they could leave it there because if there's a city in the in in this continent that could call a gigantic letter L art, it's got to be San Francisco, right? <laughs> like they'd appreciate it there. 
long after the game was gone. Well, apparently San Francisco's not too happy. Of course, the game's in Santa Clara. Right. And so San Francisco got to spend a bunch of money to throw some little parties, and they don't even get the game. It's down the road from them. Yeah, well, everything's down the road from San Fr- That's a joke about how hilly San Francisco is. Uh, I guess half the things are up the road, depending on your perspective. Uh, might get into that uh, at some point in, in the program today. we still got quite a, a show for you. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, Rob Tripp about um, th- this photograph of, uh, of one of the complainants in the Jean Gomeshi trial wearing a bikini and how a media lawyer said, you got to release this to the media. This is evidence in a, in a court. You know, this, the idea of open court suggests that if something's entered into evidence, we should be allowed to publish it. But the judge didn't see it that way. So is there some controversy here? Is there something we need to know? We're going to talk about that uh, coming up at 1130. And as promised, with your lunch, your soup and sandwich, we're going to talk to a Satanist, Stuart Dean, who's a lawyer as well, uh, oddly enough. Talk to him about the, the, the moment of silence before city council meetings in Phoenix, Arizona. Well, I mean, we had the debate in Calgary just recently about going from a prayer before council meeting to, to a moment of silence. But yeah, we didn't have the, the cool <laughs> angle of uh, the Satanists getting involved. Uh, I mean, I'm not, not going to uh, uh, back the cool angle, but it is novel. How's that? <laughs> okay, I'll go with that. Uh, let's turn our attention to, to um, I guess, questions around Canada's, well, foreign policy, certainly, but more to the point, defense policy. Obviously, uh, Arctic sovereignty was certainly a big priority under the previous government, and uh, there have been concerns that maybe the Russians are encroaching uh, a little too much into the Arctic. And uh, we hear news this week of uh, more Russian uh, activity and uh, and base construction uh, in, in the Arctic. So we want to get into that. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you about the uh, uh, expectation that next week the Liberals are going to, I guess, clarify how the Canadian mission targeting ISIS is going to change. So joining us uh, to talk about these matters, Bob Murray joining us. Uh, he's with the Frontier Center for Public Policy. Bob, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Of course, anytime. Thanks for thinking of me. Hey, Bob, we think of you anytime there's pressing questions. And the big question that's on everybody's mind is, with everything that's happening in the Arctic and military resources spread thin around the world, are you picking the Broncos or the Panthers? <laughs> I'm picking the Panthers for a wall up, even though I want the Broncos to win. Yeah, I feel the same mm-hmm. way. I want the Broncos to win, but I really think that uh, Cam Newton's going to have his day, and it's going to be one of the best Super Bowls ever. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that Cam Newton rolls an ankle in the first quarter. Um, <laughs> as awful as that sounds, but like that's the, the only way I can see Denver winning. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it, Bob. I mean, we got a couple of stories we want to get into, and I know you've written a lot about you know the question of, of Russian activity in the Arctic and, and what Canada should make of that and how much of a presence Canada and, and, and NATO, for that matter, should have in the Arctic. So what do we make now of stories once again that the uh, that the Russians are rebuilding Arctic bases and beginning to militarize uh, the Arctic? Well, it, this isn't new. I think that's important to understand. This has been a growing trend now for a number of years uh, that's complementing some of the uh, claims being made in the submissions to the uh, United Nations commissions on the limits of the continental shelf that states have been making in the last couple of years. But I, I think more than anything, what's important to understand is that this has all been within claimed Russian territory. There hasn't been any kind of aggressive uh, Russian military behavior in the Arctic beyond, uh, you know, it's flyovers once in a while and that sort of thing. Uh, but I think that the big question that we're asking is why are they doing this and what kind of attention should we be paying? Uh, and it certainly begs a lot of questions in the Canadian mindset, I think, because during Stephen Harper's time as Prime Minister, he made a very big deal about Arctic sovereignty and what this meant for Canada as a northern nation and made an important link to the Arctic and Canada's national identity and made 
promises that went unfulfilled. Uh, but when we're paying attention to the Russians right now, I think it's even equally as important to understand that a lot of this is for domestic political consumption within Russia uh, more than it is anything else in trying to provoke any kind of aggressive behavior. Yeah, expand on that a little bit, because as much as I'm an armchair quarterback on this stuff, and yes, I will try to put as many football puns in this conversation as possible, it's your gig to get down into the muck on, on these sorts of things. Now, Putin uh, domestically kind of shows off the military a little bit. That helps him, uh, uh, you know, con- uh, con- that helps him with his domestic ambitions, whereas Canada, it's not that way. We don't have tanks rolling down the streets or guys in camouflage on the corners to, you know, as a, as a show of force. So, but, but in both aspects, it's a resource play at the end of the day, isn't it? Uh, to some extent. I mean, a lot of that is pre- the resource assumptions are predicated mostly on a 2008 U.S. geological survey that told us that there is likely to be enormous reserves of oil and natural gas in the region and other minerals as well, which is why states started paying attention a little bit more to the Arctic as all, consequently it was melting simultaneously. So as opportunities to actually get to the area and possibly drill and to extract resources, it has certainly led uh, the Arctic states and also other Arctic interested states like China and Japan and the UK, for instance, to really start paying attention to it. But I think what people fundamentally misunderstand about Russia is that, you know, in the wake of the Cold War, we, we had this flawed assumption that the Western liberal order won and that suddenly Russia was going to want to integrate into Western democratic capitalist mentality uh, and that would, you know, somehow yield the end of the Cold War and the end of a Russian threat. I mean, realistically, they went through a decade of terrible economic times, terrible political times, and the one thing that Putin has used since his initial time in office, and then, of course, we know that Medvedev was in power as president, Putin came back, uh, is national pride and Russian pride. And part of that pride is predicated on opposing the West and opposing the United States. And so they're very much using the Arctic as an opportunity to showcase some modern military technology to get the attention uh, of the United States. We think it's more about Canada, but in a lot of ways it's about the United States. Don't forget that the U.S. has been kind of a reluctant Arctic player until the last couple of years uh, and paying attention to their Alaskan interests and what it means for the U.S. to be a northern nation uh, now that they've assumed the chairmanship of the uh, Arctic Council uh, and appointed former Coast Guard Admiral Papp as their representative who is doing a lot of work to build you know, the, the, the diplomatic side of Arctic relations, not the militaristic side. So for the Russians, this is very much about pride. And they, just like Canadians see the Arctic as part of our national identity and pride, so do the Russians. Uh, their geographical expanse is larger. Uh, and they're using different tactics by virtue of being a much larger military power and world power and military power than we have been uh, in Canada historically. And so we're very different approaches to it, very different interests. But again, it's very much for show. And those, you know, there, there seems to be two sides of this coin. On one hand, we have people that think there's going to be war in the Arctic breaking out tomorrow, so we need to start building a whole bunch of military technology. On the other hand, we think there's absolutely no, there's those that believe there's absolutely no threat whatsoever and that we're overblowing all of these things. I think, like in most cases, the truth is actually somewhere in the middle, where, you know, diplomacy still is winning the day in the Arctic. The Arctic Council is a growing and essential global governance uh, body that is adding to the diplomatic culture of the Arctic. It's mostly cooperative between the states and indigenous groups and NDOs, all that have a stake in Arctic relations. But simultaneously, we really do need to be paying attention to what the Russians are doing, because while I don't believe it's in our interest to indulge 
their, uh, you know, desire for a possible arms race in the north, we also can't let them continue to expand without at least some kind of effort to balance against that and to protect our own interests. Well, is, is there some irony in the fact, Bob, that we're, you know, essentially on the same side as the Americans here, I guess, uh, you know, vis-a-vis the Russians, but we, we've got our own disagreements with the U.S. and the Arctic, don't we? Yeah, we do. And there are some overlapping claims. But again, it's these claims, when we're talking about overlapping claims or claims that come into contradiction with each other, you know, there was a lot made about certain claims around the North Pole that overlap Russia, Denmark, and Canada. We're not on the verge of war to go and protect really very little. I mean, when we talk about even the idea of conflict in the Arctic, the next question is, well, what is somebody going to do? You're not going to go assume a piece of land because there really isn't very much. Uh, we're not going to see the Russians invade Baffin Island or through to Yellowknife anytime soon. So what is it we're actually looking at if we think there is tension that could ultimately lead to some kind of violent conflict? We're not going to see a World War II-esque naval battle taking place up in the Arctic. And so a lot of this is about reinforce, using military presence to reinforce political claims and diplomatic claims that are still moving through that process. And so when we're looking at counterbalancing the Russians, I think this is really where a difficult question is getting asked. There are those that believe that NATO needs to be playing a far more active role in the region and to start you know, counterbalancing Russia in the Arctic the same way they're counter, trying to counterbalance Russia in Eastern Europe. I tend to think this is a really bad idea because not only does it play into the Russians' hands, but it also unnecessarily escalates tension. I mean, right now the Russians are kind of playing their own game. They're launching exercises and they're sailing around and they're saying, look how great we are, but no one's really paying such close attention to them that it's giving them a reason to continue to expand or to be able to go to their domestic populations to say, see, as the Canadians and Americans and NATO expands in the Arctic, we have to continue that and risk setting off an arms race in the Arctic, which thus far has been incredibly cooperative and peaceful. So there's a number of variables that have to be contended. But in terms of counterbalancing the Russians, I think the best thing that we can do is actually engage in dialogue and continue that diplomatic effort, which has been successful thus far. And, you know, when, when Mr. Harper started seizing those opportunities and, and eliminating those opportunities for engaging Russia in, in useful dialogue, mostly over Ukraine, but it also did spill over into the Arctic a little bit, I think we started to limit those avenues, which is as a middle power or a small power state militarily, the worst thing that we can do when the best thing that we have going for us are collective defense arrangements and multilateral organizations like the Arctic Council or the UN uh, and diplomacy. Right. Yeah, I have a hard time seeing us turn northern Manitoba into, you know, a new Poland where we'll have NATO forces doing uh, training exercises and whatnot as a way of saying, hey, don't come any further. But uh, let me ask you this. Um, it, it seems as though, you know, we talked a little bit about Stephen Harper and uh, his strategies, and it's quite clear that this Trudeau government values uh, resources in a different way than the Harper government did. They seem to value uh, military actions in, in a different way than the Stephen Harper's uh, government did. Uh, so given what we've seen so far, does it appear to you that Trudeau's position on this might be to just say, you know, we don't care about finding new resources all that much anyway. We're going to punt. Uh, I sincerely hope not, and I don't think it's as much about resources as it's about ensuring that Canada's national interests are met. I mean, we we talk a lot about the Arctic as this abstract, cold, barren area where, you know, we're we're thinking of icebreakers and naval ships and flyovers when there are people up there. And the, the most important thing I think that we can do to make our claims to the UN and sovereignty claims more robust is to focus on the human development side of things and the economic development side of the Arctic uh, to reinforce what it is that we've been saying. And that is something that should play very well into Mr. Trudeau's message, uh, both with indigenous groups as well as this national economic conversation. But I think what's been interesting thus far from the new government is we have heard incredibly little about uh, his Arctic strategy and how the new government kind of sees the Arctic and wants to approach the Arctic. I mean, this 
you know, builds on the fact that we really haven't even, we've yet to hear a coherent strategy on the mission in the Middle East or what a foreign defense policy strategy is going to be for the new government. And of course, uh, until we hear some of that, I think we might hear the Arctic involved in some of that. But I think that they have been incredibly silent on Canada's northern interests uh, and northern affairs thus far, which is kind of interesting. It certainly is. Stand by, uh, Bob. We'll, we'll switch gears and we'll talk about uh, that, that mission uh, targeting ISIS. Uh, we might get some clarity on that next week. Uh, Bob Murray's our guest, a political scientist. He's with the Frontier Center for Public Policy. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770, speaking with uh, Bob Murray, political scientist from the Frontier Center for Public Policy. So, Bob, as we alluded to before the break, it sounds like the liberals are going to announce something next week. Uh, we are going to, to bring home the CF-18s, but we'll have some additional air involvement on the reconnaissance and refueling side. We'll, we'll step up our training efforts. But when you get right down to it, is, is there really any kind of legitimate reason why the mission needs to change or why we need to end uh, the airstrike component? Well, I think there's two things I would say. On the political side, the campaign promise uh, that Trudeau made, obviously it's something that he wants to live up to. Whether or not that's in the best interests of uh, a coherent strategy remains to be seen. But I think there is a case for taking a step back from this coalition mission and saying, you know what, how can we do things a little bit differently? Because to be frank, we really don't know what we're working towards as a coalition in that area right now. If the goal, as Obama had previously said, was the eradication of ISIS, we're nowhere near that, and we're not even taking, we're not even close to taking steps towards that. And so we have to admit thus far that it's not working. And so I think an important conversation on the part of that coalition needs to take place to say, all right, what is it that we're actually aiming to do? What's our end game? What happens moving forward? And how is it that those that are part of this coalition can best serve that type of mission? We really haven't seen that yet. So on that front, I think that there is a case for Canada taking a step back to say, you know what, we're going to do what we feel that we're better at, and we're going to provide these other resources like special ops training, uh, like humanitarian aid, like recon and intel gathering. Uh, but again, thus far, we haven't heard anything really coherent. We know that our allies are not entirely pleased uh, with the approach of the Trudeau government thus far, uh, particularly the withdrawal of the CF-18s without justification. I think that's what's been bothering people both domestically and internationally simultaneously, which is, okay, you say that you want to withdraw them, but we have yet to hear a justification that makes any logical sense whatsoever. Uh, and so we're going to hear an announcement. It does sound like going into the NATO uh, summit coming up that uh, what Canada's contribution is going to be. But again, we need to hear why. Why is it that he felt a need to change that, particularly when public opinion polls show that Canadians are supportive of not only taking part in a mission, but also the airstrikes? Uh, and why is it that this new approach is somehow going to yield uh, significantly better results than the way that the Harper government had approached it. So until we start hearing some of that, it's just going to beg more questions and it's going to give us answers. Bob, do you get the sense that Canada is paying a price politically for for, uh, for having, an about, not an about face, but changing their position uh, on the strategy against ISIS? We spoke with Matthew Fisher some time ago, who said that uh, there are those who are maybe more entrenched in the battle against ISIS who feel that uh, Canada's actions uh, under Prime Minister Trudeau are something of a betrayal. Um, well, I, I think what played into the hands of those that would probably make that argument, actually, was going to be that in the wake of the Paris attacks, we saw allies coming together in the commitment to escalate the mission because I think it was yet another reinforcement that things weren't working out quite the way they wanted them to and that there are a number of elements to this mission. So, you know, it was fascinating that on one hand, within the span of about 24 hours, you had David Cameron 
in the House in London talking about why it's imperative for allies of France and the United States to escalate this mission through, mission through airstrikes. And simultaneously in Canada, you had the Trudeau government saying that this is not doing any good and there's no need for us to be doing that. We need to pull out. And so it has put Canada very much in an awkward position where traditional allies are seeing us as running away from the fight while they are simultaneously escalating the fight by virtue of the fact of trying to bring the fight uh, to ISIS in the wake of some of these attacks. And so, uh, again, I think it also goes back to the fact that our allies were not appropriately briefed about what it is that we were doing and what it is that we feel that we can be good at. When you have the Canadian government saying we can do things better by doing it our way and allies are doing exactly the opposite and far more powerful allies, I might point out, are doing things the opposite way, it certainly begs a lot of questions about Canada's re-engagement with its allies, which was part of Mr. Harper's campaign and his foreign policy strategy, which is, you know, we're going to go to our allies and we're going to work a lot closer, particularly with the United States. And then within the first couple of months, you uh, aggravate the United States by ending the air mission in, um, in a coalition mission the U.S. sees as key to its strategic interests. So there's a lot of doublespeak. Well, there is. And that's a big problem with the liberal policy is that it, it hasn't made sense and it hasn't been coherent. Um, but I, I, I guess I would say this. I mean, you know, the, the Americans are going to have their own presidential election later this year. It's possible that a new president will have a new approach to this. Uh, in, in Canada's defense, should our allies have expected that, okay, this country's just elected a new government, this government might take a different approach, or this government might need some time to figure out where it wants to go? You know, there's no doubt that a, a change in government is likely to yield at least some kind of change in foreign and defense policy, but it's incumbent on the new government to communicate with its allies and to be very clear about what it is that it's thinking and doing and why it's doing it. You know, to, to say to Barack Obama, we're taking our, our CF-18s out because I made an election promise, that is not adequate when allies are bearing the brunt of this fight in the Middle East. And this is not a walk in the park. These are incredibly expensive and difficult missions, and it does involve ally involvement to make sure that there's been to be some measure of success. And so when you come into office on an election promise without actually seeing the details, remember when you're running for election as the leader of the third party, you really had no sophisticated backroom understanding as to what was actually going on in the rooms where other allies were talking because you wouldn't have been privy to all of that. Mm -hmm. Upon taking office, the hope would have been that you would take your time and talk to allies about what they think they need from Canada and what the new government thinks that it can best do both for its for Canada's interest in its own political purposes, but by virtue of just being so firm on this election promise and saying, under no circumstance are we going to stay there and keep doing this, I think it aggravated people more than it certainly inspired them that a new government would do things differently. All right, Bob, as always, uh, great insight. Thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. And go Broncos. Go Bills. <laughs> Bills. <laughs> what? I don't get it, but uh, I think it's funny. <laughs> Maybe it's just because I just watched the Jim Kelly documentary or the Bills documentary. Or they, was that called? The Buffalo Falls? <laughs> Why didn't they ever call any other teams the Buffalo Buffaloes? I think they would. Um, That'd be great. Here's something that I ponder on the Trudeau change in the mission thing. How many people think that the Jets are valuable and that they should stay in the air? I mean, I have a hard time conceiving this question, but if it were the other way around, right? And if it weren't even a change of, of, of uh, leadership, but if Canada just decided, like, look, we've got ground forces in there right now, but we think we'll be do a better job by putting planes in the sky and running missile strikes, would we criticize the government for that? And I'm not trying to give Trudeau a way out here. All I'm doing is saying that if you could express why you're making the decision and saying this will have a much more positive impact in trying to quash ISIS... I don't think there'd be uh, it'd be tough sell.
if you could quantify it and it could be measured, I think the Canadians wouldn't say, oh, you're cutting and running, you're a chicken. Problem is that Trudeau says he supports the airstrikes. So in that sense, he's trying to have it both ways. I think if Trudeau's argument was, uh, look, airstrikes aren't the right approach to this. We need to try different ways. Because obviously our allies are stepping up their airstrikes. And Trudeau says he supports those airstrikes. And we're going to provide logistical support, reconnaissance, and refueling to assist those airstrikes. So if we believe then in those airstrikes, that we're trying to help those airstrikes succeed, then one way to help them succeed is to be doing airstrikes ourselves, which we're not going to do anymore because Trudeau doesn't think they're a good idea. But he supports them and is going to support them because they're a good idea. At what point, though, like, do we just do we just all decide uniformly that the reason we're ending the airstrikes eventually is because he said so, right? It's just because he took one day in the commons when there was the stakes weren't high and he was the, the leader of the third party. He just said, I wouldn't do that. Right. If, if the polls are really against the mission, he probably would have taken the, the Tom Mulcair approach. They said, OK, well, people don't like the idea of a of a bush style iraq mission people aren't sure about stephen harper so okay we can differentiate ourselves from him and still appeal to those people who say they support the mission and it was all a political calculation 100 percent. we've seen the saudis in recent days too say that they're willing to get behind the any american involvement in syria i wonder what that'll look like that's, that kind of raises well, the stakes a little bit. How are things going in Yemen? <laughs> Saudi involvement there. Precisely. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's do this. We'll stop down now for the news to uh, to eleven thirty. When we come back, we're going to talk uh, to Rob Tripp. Um, this is an interesting conversation, and Rob, uh, I believe, uh, who is keeping an eye on the Gian Gomeshi trial, uh, has some interesting perspective on whether or not the photograph of one of the complainants wearing a bikini should be published. It was entered into evidence. Right, and he's not covering the trial per se. I mean, Rob Tripp, he, he worked with us for a while here. Uh, he's a longtime reporter, court reporter. He wrote a book, uh, which uh, I forget the title. <laughs> we'll have to plug his book. But he's in the process of writing another book uh, yeah. on, on the history of the Kingston Penitentiary. But someone who, who understands how things work with evidence and publication bans and you know, what, what's on the public record and how do we convey that to, to people via the news media? It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.